Feminism is a term and subject of many conversations, much confusion, and oftentimes the height of contention because of differing views about what it is and isn't. But is it really that black and white? Is there only one correct way to be a feminist? And does saying you're pro-women actually mean you're a feminist? Hello and welcome to a new episode of The Workplace Revolution with me, Sita Bolani. For today's show, I am back with innovator, diversity, equity and inclusion advocate, coach and advisor, Sharita Dyer. Sharita, welcome back to The Workplace Revolution. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Sikhe. So this big, bad word called feminism. Yes. I mean, the big F. Yes. <laughs> Whether you are in social spaces or if you have a look at social media, whenever the word feminism comes up, there's always a lot of commotion around it. For you, yes. how do you define feminism? You know, this is such a great question. And, um, you know, I jokingly said it's the big F word because mm. I think that, you know, sometimes there's so much of negativity associated with the word feminism. Now, you know, when I was a younger girl, I had this image in my head of feminism being this bunch of bra burning, man hating, pink hating women. And I just couldn't identify with it, right? And later, much later in my life, I discovered that that was a myth and that was a stereotype right. uh, around the movement. And I, you know, I really assure you, there was no mass bra burning ceremonies taking place, uh, unlike the myth that perpetuated. But it's this misconception, I think, that resulted in feminism getting quite a bad rap over the years. Right. And it caused many women and men to not identify with this cause. But really, if you stand for equality for everyone, then mm. chances are you are a feminist because that's what feminism is about, really. Mm. It's not about hating men or having more power over men. It's really about challenging the way society views women and offering women viable options, you know, mm. outside this patriarchal view of who women should be and what opportunities they can access. Mm. Uh, at, at, the, at the core of feminism is liberation, right? Mm. It's about challenging systemic biases and in, inequalities in all spheres of life for a woman, be that economically, socially, and politically. Mm. Now, what I see a lot, and you touched on this, is that, you know, the confusion I see come in, particularly in social media, is feminism versus women's empowerment. Mm. Now, these are very closely related, right? But they're not interchangeable terms. Mm. Now, women's empowerment is more of a, I guess we look at it as more of a means or a process to achieve the larger objective set out by feminist movements. Mm. Now, to get to gender equality, for example, women's empowerment is really important because empowerment talks about promoting individual self-worth and personal agency mm. and the right to make choices. So it's important in gender equality. But feminism is actually much broader. It's not a process, it's a movement. It's more systemic in focus. And it actually also doesn't consider only gender. Mm. It includes those who identify as female as well. Mm. Now, feminism's history, and I think this is what's led to it being so confusing, the history has been quite complex, right? Now, historically, the feminist movements were led by middle-class white women. And I think over the years, the movement was berated for really centering the experiences of middle-class white women. Mm. But it was in the 90s, I think, you know, in the early to middle 90s, that we saw the emergence of feminism 
as it exists today and it's become a lot more identifiable and inclusive and this is when feminism turned its attention to equality for all and bringing more women into positions of power mm. and it was in the back of the work of um it was actually two well-known gender and race theorists called Kimberly Crenshaw and she coined this term intersectionality mm. um and Judith Butler and she she argued she says well gender and sex are two different things mm-hmm. so feminism started to have this really this reckoning right Mm-hmm. with itself and and really started to consider what does intersectionality mean in practice and mm-hmm. why is intersectionality important in feminism mm-hmm. so you know long story short i think where we are now is really at this cusp um and it's at this place where we are starting to have um you know a real um reckoning that if feminism does not actively consider all women Mm. then it's not truly about equality and liberation. We mm. can't just profess to be about everyone if it's not coming through in practice in mm. workplaces and societies. And I think this because there's fundamentally been an underestimation and denial of how systemic and pervasive bias is, right? Mm. So more work has to be done to actually actively embed intersectionality into feminism because it won't just happen organically as we've seen. Mm. And sexism has found its way into feminism. By virtue mm. of the fact that it's centered the voices of white middle class women for so long, but this thinking is really only just starting to take shape, and we, we now see that many workplaces are starting to see well, why is intersectionality important in equality and inclusion initiatives? Because when you overlap identity with other factors like race, mm. parenting status, socioeconomic factors, sexuality, um, ableism, then you really now start to see that we don't exist in these binary identities. So. If we don't exist in binary identities, we can't experience discrimination in the same way. Mm. And the most vulnerable groups in workplaces and societies are still having negative experiences, even if we are represented, and this is black and brown women who operate at intersections, even if we are represented, we are still having negative experiences. So mm. we need to actively understand how is this manifesting and, and really now get down to the work of what do we do differently. Mm. You know, it, it's... I'm so happy that you brought up the point around intersectionality because so often, I mean, and this is something that we are still struggling with and, you know, we think we're quite advanced because we're in 2021, but actually when you look at the things that people um, write or listen to the conversations that people have, you realize that actually we still have such a long way to go. Um, You know, when I think about the intersectionality of feminism um, and think about how so often heterosexual women can be so harmful to to you know groups who other groups who identify as women um you know when you think about um um you know our our queer communities and how heterosexual right. women can say oh we're all about women women for women we support women but when a trans woman who identifies as a woman and is a woman uh, comes into the picture, then all of a sudden the standards change. Or right. when, you know, uh, a, a heterosexual woman is frustrated by dating men and then she will joke around and weaponize the fact that, oh, you know, I'm not going to date men anymore. I'm just going to become a lesbian. Not realizing yeah, yeah. just how harmful that is for our queer communities. So the language Absolutely. is such a huge problem because... As, as as women, as as heterosexual women particularly, 
there's a lot of work that we are not doing, that we are avoiding, and a lot of internal reflection that we're not doing in terms of how we are excluding other groups from this movement, which is seeking to literally liberate all of us from the shackles of patriarchy, of masculinity, etc., etc. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think this is a reckoning that we need to start having, right? And these, and this is where, you know, when we look at where it's manifesting and how it's manifesting um, in workplaces and society, and this is a great example that you gave about owning our privilege, right? Mm-hmm. Now, even though we are all women, we have certain privileges, mm-hmm. right? I'm, I'm a brown woman, I experience oppression, but I also have privileges and I can use my privilege mm-hmm. to support all women in the workplace and in mm-hmm. society. I'm able-bodied, um, I'm heterosexual, and those are privileges, right? Mm-hmm. Which others don't enjoy. So I think we're at the stage now where we have to start having some really tough conversations and confront our bias. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I, I've seen in doing this work that one of the biggest hurdles that we face in getting into these conversations is denial. Mm -hmm. We have this denial that um, inequalities still exist and barriers still exist because Mm -hmm. we fundamentally want to hold on to this utopia view that we are all the same, Mm -hmm. but we are not. And our races are different. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of optics that happens in this work. We say, oh, what do you need support for? Um, You're a established woman. You are into, you know, you, you have a great job. You Mm -hmm. have Um, you know, a good salary. So there's a lot of optics saying, well, I don't actually need to do any more because you seem to be okay. Mm. But what we don't talk about is the invisible barriers that we each face. Mm. We don't talk about the unseen races, I call it. We don't Mm. talk about the things that we actually have to experience behind the Mm. scenes and the invisible loads that we carry. Mm. Um, So even though we may all be in the same race, uh, so to speak, as in a physical race, mm. our hurdles in that race is not the same. Mm. We we have very different journeys to get us to where we want to go. The other thing I see when we when we talk about prejudice and bias is, you know, there's there's this reluctance to to really unpack forms of bias and what limiting beliefs we hold about other groups of people. Mm. And I think that this is fundamentally because we have a moral objection to the word bias. Mm. Now, bias is a very human condition. Mm. We all have bias. If you have a brain, you have bias, Mm. right? That's a scientific fact. And every single one of us has some incomplete or preconceived ideas of the other person. Now, to actually really start overcoming this moral objection, we have to move past holding bias is a good versus bad moral character judgment Mm. it does not mean you're a bad person if you have bias it just means that you have these limiting beliefs so when we get past that hurdle we can start having more open conversations and we can interrogate ourselves and say well what limiting beliefs do you have about homosexual people, about trans people, uh, or women? We're talking about feminism. What limiting beliefs do you have about other women? What limiting beliefs and biases do you hold about brown women and black mm. women and so on and so forth? So when we remove the stigma that bias is bad and that some people don't have bias, then mm. we can move forward to healthy conversations. Mm, absolutely. Now, we live in a time where... Almost everywhere you turn, uh, you come across a woman and it is, they are a woman for women. They are Mm -hmm. pro-women. They are uh, a girl boss. Oh my goodness, don't get me started on that. What happened to just being a boss, right? (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) 
Um, and, you know, we see all of these, you know, phrases and, and, and I, I guess, ways that... And I, look, I can understand that it is attempts to kind of instill some sort of, of hyping yourselves as women, hyping us up as women, you know, like in owning the fact that we're women and we're bosses. But I wonder sometimes about how effective that actually is. But that's not the point of this question. <laughs> Um, in the context of those types of, of, of conversations and labels and phrases, how does it actually translate into our lived experiences and the relationships that we have with each other? No, that's that's a great question because we see so much of this now on social media, oh. right? Now, social media has been great because it really gives you this platform for scale and it gives you the platform to get messages out at pace. But what we've also kind of seen, and this, this is really dangerous that Mm. on social media because content has become so catchy and it's become so marketable um, that there's kind of this feeling that if it's out there then change is happening Mm. and that's not really the reality right there's a notion that women must support each other not compete with each other this is really great these are great messages but Mm. are we seeing this translate in workplaces in everyday life and we are not because these are systemic issues we're talking about and and we've seen this and and you know we've spoken about this a lot about how if we overlook the systemic things that are holding women back and we only focus on our changing behavior or thinking positively or mindset we're really overlooking the things that can neutralize our efforts, right? Mm. And that's systemic issues. So in reality, we're not seeing it. And we're seeing a lot of what I call performative feminism. Mm. And, and this is really dangerous because, like I said, it creates a perception that changes are happening or somebody is doing something mm. and it's happening, so I don't need to get involved or there are no systemic issues or systemic issues have been taken care of. And that's not true. We are not seeing that in workplaces. We're certainly not seeing it in the stats. And we're not seeing it when we actually interrogate the experience of all women. Mm. Now, a great example of this was, and this triggered me, and I, I wrote a long article about this as well. You know, there was this black and white picture challenge that went around uh, a couple months ago, and mm. this picture circulated all in the name of women's empowerment, right? But women supporting each other. Mm. And social media caught on to it, and Instagram caught on to it, and everyone's posting these pictures, beautiful pictures of themselves. And that movement was actually created in Turkey to bring attention to the struggle of women's empowerment in Turkey. Mm. But that message quickly became diluted over social media, all in the name of Instagrammable, pretty, inspiring content. And the original message of what it was trying to do was buried. Mm. So, you know, this is how it can actually become really dangerous when we confuse what's happening outside optically and social media and performative measures with the real systemic struggles that we need to address. Mm. Absolutely right. You know, I mean, as somebody who who works a lot with organizational culture and employee engagement, uh, one of the the key things that comes into play uh, when working towards building a healthy and solid culture in any environment is the concept of being able to bring in shared value and shared experiences to be able to build communities that are solid, that have a solid foundation, communities that are, offer psychological safety. Yes. Now, as women, we have so many shared experiences. They may not be identical, but we and we've been through a lot of the same types of struggles. We face a lot of the same types of barriers, though they may vary along the way. But somehow, <laughs> 
those experiences、okay. still fail for the most part to enable us to come together as and build solid communities that actually offer each other mutual support in a meaningful way. Why do we still have those barriers? If we're all fighting the same fight, we all are fighting、yeah. against the same thing. Why are we unable、right. to actually come together in a meaningful way? So I think the first thing that you said is important. That、um, we are all in the first in the same fight.、Mm. Now we I don't think that there's consensus around that, or that there is actually this win-win attitude.、Mm. I think there's still a little bit of. Somebody has to lose, somebody has to win, kind of、mm. attitude, right?、Um, there's still the sense of、um, yes, we kind of in solidarity, but we are still competing with each other for these like limited seats that we have at the table. And I, and I think you know we've spoken about you know how the numbers can be misleading and how quota systems can sometimes distract us. But I think this whole idea about there being limited seats at the table and we all competing for those seats at the table has really Attracted a lot on the on the efforts of consolidation and solidarity.、Mm. The other thing that you know, I think I see happening quite a lot is how do we actually create true allyship? And、mm. what is true allyship, right? Because it's easy to say that we are doing stuff, and it's easy to talk about it, our experiences, but how does this actually extend into into action?、Mm. So how do we actually become allies? To each other, how do we become aware of the unseen、um, hurdles that we face?、Mm. So, performative allyship is something that's really gotten、um, quite a lot of flack, right? So, people that profess to be in solidarity, but we don't see that translating into action.、Mm. So, with women, we talk about. Um, helping each other, but what does that mean? Now, women need mentorship. Yes, we come together, we talk about our our issues, we talk about our hurdles. But what does it mean to advocate for each other?、Mm. And allyship is about advocating. It's about publicly advocating for each other, but especially advocating for each other when you're not in the room.、Mm. It's not about saying privately, "I support you," but your actions show otherwise.、Mm. Women also need. Access, right?、Mm. It, we also need to be able to use our positions of privilege, and this speaks about women of color who enrolls in, in, in you know, positions of power and authority. White women who have access to networks, etc., etc. This is about opening up your networks of resources to groups who need it.、Mm. And we all know that formal and informal networks help advance careers, right? And many women just don't have that. Many women don't have that because you know from、uh, previously disadvantaged backgrounds and socioeconomic differences. So it's not about saying, well. Let me mentor you. It's about saying, let me give you access, right? Let me actually help open up my networks and resources. And if you if you're leaving certain people out and you're professing to be in solidarity, but you leave them out of those spa days and the golf days, you leave them out of email chains, etc. Then that's not solidarity. That's not allyship.、Mm. And the other thing we really need is, you know, and I say this a lot that we need. We need solidarity in fighting our issues, right?、Mm-hmm. It's about calling out bias and aggressions, and this is really important because real allyship knows that from certain groups in the workplace with certain groups of women, there's a very real fear of retaliation when we call out bias. Now, other groups like white women, for example, we know the statistically from research that they don't face the same backlash and level of penalties when they speak out,、mm-hmm. and allies will know this, right? They know that. That it doesn't have to happen to them for it to be important to them.、Mm-hmm. So they will really use their voices if they have authority based on whether it's just 
you know, authority based on the color of their skin or authority based on the fact that, you know, they have access to certain privileged networks with an organization or it's authority because they are in senior ranks. They will use this privilege and authority to interrupt bias for others when they see it. Mm. So if somebody does something inappropriate, for me, it's most important. And I see solidarity when somebody actually speaks up for me, when they use their voice of privilege to say, hey, that wasn't okay. I don't like the way you spoke to Sharita. Mm. So those are, that's allyship. That's non-performative allyship. That's actually saying, I'm invested in this with you. I'm with you. I'm standing with you. And I'm going to actively help you dismantle barriers. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. Now, you know, when we now bring the conversation into the context of the workplace, um, you know, um, in our previous conversation, we spoke a lot about diversity and inclusion. Um, and, you know, the intersectionality plays a, a role throughout, you know, whatever, whichever aspect of diversity and inclusion that you're looking at. Um, and when we think about how organizations approach diversity and inclusion, they'll think about race. They'll think right. about uh, sex, men, women, <laughs> right, as they know yeah. it. And it's almost always with a very heterosexual lens. Um, but so often organizations don't think about um, being able-bodied versus living with disabilities. Um, so often organizations don't consider the LGBTQIA plus community, considering right. the fact that we still live in a society that is quite hostile towards members of the LGBTQIA plus community. So, so many people may be part of the queer community, but cannot for their own safety and for fear of retaliation or fear of missing out on opportunities, uh, come out in the workplace and say, oh, yes, I'm actually part, I'm part of the LGBTQIA plus community. And so how do we then manage intersectionality in that context where you have people who don't feel safe enough to show up as their authentic selves in the workplace? Can we really say that we're inclusive? No, I mean, not at all. And, you know, in our previous conversation, we spoke about the bedrock for inclusivity being psychological safety. Mm. So we don't have these spaces where people can be their authentic self, then we inclusion is just not going to happen. Mm. It's not going to happen by just add some diversity and add some water and there you go, inclusion happens. It mm. takes this active effort to create safe spaces for people, right? Mm. Now, if we look at vulnerable groups, and these are vulnerable groups, and I keep stressing why allyship is so so important in the workplace because some groups just don't have the voice and they don't have the safety to speak out and say look you know this is who i am mm. and the other reason that you, you see and, and and again we touched on this a little bit mm. that this prototype for what the ideal worker is and that prototype is not an inclusive prototype right that prototype has really been based on a white able-bodied heterosexual man right mm. um so that that's not inclusive so we need to start really breaking up that prototype and say this is not the model prototype uh, because that doesn't serve anyone it doesn't even serve men right mm. it doesn't even serve white men to dear to this prototype it's really limiting for them as well so we have to dismantle that and say the prototype for success is based on other factors and success means different things to different people it's very easy to say to people well bring your authentic self to work mm. when authentic looks like everyone around you right? right but then it's very easy but when we bring our authentic selves to work if a you know a person who identifies as trans is bringing their authentic self to work mm. and they're the only in the room 
um, and the model prototype worker is not modeled and designed for them, then they're simply not going to do that. And that's mm-hmm. why allyship is really, really important, that we speak out for those people if we have positions of privilege and power. Mm-hmm. And intersectionality is not just about the overlapping identities and how we experience discriminations, but how layers of power and privilege play out as well. And mm-hmm. we all have different degrees of power and privilege. So we need to use that to help advance the voices of other people and create safe spaces for them. But fundamentally, we need to break this idea of what is the prototype ideal worker. Mm. Now, one of the main challenges that we face in dealing with any kind of work that helps progress us as a people is the issue of gatekeepers and protectors of the status quo. Yes. Um, You know, so often in the workplace and in society, a lot of the things that we're fighting against, when you think about feminism and the issues that women um, face it's men wanting to maintain the status quo right and what, right. what often happens is that we as women will come together and speak about what we need to do what we need to fight what needs to change how we need to change the way that we operate but men are not having those same conversations amongst themselves um, if you think about you know other contexts like uh, heterosexual versus um the queer community and how the heterosexual community with its privilege does not actually consider how they can be the change to create different, safer environments for the queer community who are the more marginalized group in that particular context. And then you take it further and you think about able-bodied people and the way in which they we do not consider the needs and the challenges faced by uh, people living with disabilities and whether it's where the way in which an office is set up, whether it's in, is considering accessibility issues if we need to do a work trip, for instance. Um, right. When you think about religion and you're planning a Christmas party, firstly, it's a Christmas, it's called a Christmas party, even though not <laughs> everyone <laughs> is Christian. Um, and then catering is done and people haven't catered for Muslim people who are part of the team, right. you know, and so they kind of have to sit there and be like, oh, it's okay, I'll just have a salad because nobody has considered them and included them and actually been an ally for them in that way. Right. How do we navigate that? How do we deal with those issues of just, I guess, ignorance, but also how do we deal with yeah. the people who are actively resisting this change? <laughs> Right. So um, I think there's two there's two parts to that question. And I think the first is the ignorance thing. Right. Mm. Um, and, and, and I think we should pause on that for a little bit. Now, too often we see that there's this um, kind of get out of jail free card. Mm. Can I use that term? I think there is. And they say, well, oh, I didn't know. Yeah. Or I have unconscious bias. And you know, <laughs> unconscious bias is this great excuse. Right. Mm. I mean, it was happening somewhere in my unconscious, but I didn't know. So I'm so sorry. And and then there's all this kind of like, let, you know, absolve myself from responsibility. Now, in this day and age, it's just not acceptable. Mm. There is a plethora of resources out there. One Google search will actually show you, right, that they are different cultures and religions. I mean, if you want to know what Muslim people eat, Google it, right? Mm. And they will say they eat, you know, they don't eat pork and they eat whatever. So there is so much information out there that it's really a lazy excuse for people to say that they don't know. Mm. So if you are about equality and you are about an inclusive workplace, do the work. I keep saying that, right? There's too much information out there. I mean, you and I having this conversation, Sifle, and we are both equality and inclusion specialists. Mm. Um, and we're pretty visible out there along with many other activists in the field. Mm. If you don't know, ask as well. Now it's mm. not the job 
of marginalized groups to teach others. That's not our responsibility. If you invested in the quality work, do the work and pay for the work. It's also not fair in asking people in a workplace, I'm going to take a bunch of people, put them on a committee, now do the work for us for free and mm-hmm. educate us. Mm-hmm. That's not acceptable, right? Mm-hmm. So, we, and too often I see this in workplaces and you probably do as well, they set up a diversity committee and they staff it with either only women and that's the gender equality committee Mm -hmm. or they staff it with just people from you know um, underrepresented groups or vulnerable groups and they say okay they're going to solve everything else outside of this prototype ideal worker Mm -hmm. and it becomes their responsibility to solve for these problems now by doing that already absolve a whole group of people from accountability and from doing the work and educating themselves. Mm. So I'm a really strong advocate of diversity work cannot belong to a group of people who are experiencing the effects of marginalization. It needs to be representative of your entire organizational structure, Mm -hmm. particularly those with more privilege and Mm. particularly those with more access. They have to be a part of solving for that. Mm. Only then can we hold them accountable. So I think that's the the first part is about the ignorance factor, Mm -hmm. right? There's no excuse for ignorance, Mm -hmm. whether it's conscious or unconscious. There's a lot of people out there who actually train you, pay them, and they'll come run a training course for you, and we can can start talking about these things. Mm. Um, The second thing um, you mentioned was resistance. Now, this is a really great question because, um, you know, I, I, I talk about sometimes how my my view of the world changed and how my life changed. And it really did when I had a a black female coach. And she said this to me. She said, you know, Sharita, not everyone is invested in changing the status quo. Mm. And I, I know that sounds really simple, right? But I always naively thought, well, equality is the right thing to do. It's, it's morally correct, surely, right? Mm. But the truth is that unequal systems remain in place because they were built to serve the privileged few who are invested in maintaining that power. So... When I speak about resistance in a workplace, I'm always reminded that we are not handing a resistor. We are never handing a person. We are up against a system. Mm. And to face a system, we have to have solidarity in the workplace. Mm. Now, members of vulnerable groups can absolutely do a lot more to lift and support each other and advocate for each other. And we spoke about allyship. Mm. And I, I, I personally don't see a lot of solidarity and allyship happening within communities of vulnerable groups as well within the workplace. Mm. You know, when I I was going through, you know, uh, a difficult, challenging situation with my ex, um, one of my ex-employers as well, I, I didn't have a lot of people that I could speak to. And I looked around me and even black and brown men and women were just not there to support me, right? Mm. And I was like, where are you? Are you complicit in upholding these bias systems? But what they were really saying is, you know, hey, I'm just trying to keep my job here too because, mm. you know, they're coming for you, they come for me. So as long as we we stand divided and we keep acting like we're competing for those limited seats that we're given, we can't change the system if there's no real allyship and solidarity and helping each other dismantle these, these barriers. So we need that allyship. We need people who are actually trying to real equality in the workplace. And there are people who are. So we may live in a you know, in a in a in a system that's really unequal. But the truth is, some voices are valued more than others. So the voice of a man is valued more than a woman. It's not fair, but it's reality. Mm. The voice of a white woman is valued more than a woman of color. Mm. So these are groups that we also need to actively engage in the workplace, right? If they're committed to true equality, then they'll use their voices to support ours. And and then we need to get quite active and intentional about creating what I call these informal allyship networks, right? 
you know, carefully examining who are the non-performative allies who's truly aligned with equality and bring these people together to help support us. So it, it's, it takes collective action. Mm. Um, and then you deal with individual resistors. You know, often there'll be people that are, they're benign and they're just annoying and they say silly things. And But more often than not, it's malignant, right? It can, mm. They can be serious detractors to inclusion efforts. And, and this is why... In the workplace, boundaries are so important. And mm-hmm. I say this to many young women who are starting out in the workplace. And I say, you know, you're going to handle resistance. It's going to happen. Now, I wish I had learned very early in my career how to set boundaries up front. And I used to have this very negative view of boundaries. I used to think boundaries was this very hostile thing, right? It's a very aggressive act. But it really isn't. It's just about being clear very early in your career and quite upfront about what is okay and what is not. Mm. And then calling out these biases as they happen. Mm. Now, when we call out these biases, it's not only about, it doesn't always have to be this big confrontation or having to go through HR, unless it's absolutely necessary. But a lot of microaggressions can actually be called out every day and in the moment. And it's as simple as saying things like, what did you mean by that? why do you not think that this is important given the data, etc.? cetera? Uh, oh, that was not aligned to our company values. And then paraphrase your company values, right? Mm-hmm. So we've got to really take the time to learn about our company's policies, and we overlook that sometimes. And we've got to really learn about what does our company profess to do? You know, how do they market themselves to their stakeholders? How do mm-hmm. they market themselves uh, around diversity inclusion? And then hold them to account. So when something happens in the workplace and somebody does something, be it a microaggression or yells at you, that's your moment to say, hey, this is not aligned to our company values. Mm-hmm. And then paraphrase that back to them. Now, if most women anything like me, I'm often a deer in the headlights, right? I, I, I sometimes just go like, oh, my God, I can't believe that just happened to me. And I'm not really sure what to say. Mm. Um, so, you know, I give I give my mentees as well this kind of go-to list of microaggressions and acts of resistance and then little micro blurbs that they can use in the moment. And I, I wish I had something like that when I started out because then I would have really known what to say. But mm. it's not it's not so much that we don't know what to say. It'd be taken aback. And by the time we let that moment pass and we have the conversation, the impact is really diluted and it gives your aggressors and the resistors time to actually get their story together, mm. you know, and come at you and and our impact gets diluted. So so standing up also means that we need to think carefully about our privileges and how to use them. And and it may not always be wise to put yourself out there when you have limited privileges and you're not part of an in-group. Mm. And that's why you've got to choose your allies really, really carefully and choose your battles carefully. Mm. Um, I think we underestimate sometimes the resistance in an organization that company dynamics are actually just as important as building your professional expertise. Um, But we focus so much on building our professional expertise Mm. that we can actually almost overlook that it's the informal dynamics that are happening that can have Mm. a greater role in our success or failure. Mm. Absolutely. Ego. One of the things that... um, (laughs) So many of us underestimate in terms of the impact that it actually can have on us and those around us. Um, From your experience, and I mean, you also work as a coach, so I'm sure this comes through um, in some of the interactions you may have with your clients, but also just in terms of your consultation work. How does ego impact us and the relationships that we have, but also how does it influence the decisions that we make? 
Oh, that's a great question. I mean, you know, there's, um, and we see a lot of this in the workplace. We see a lot of this when it comes to different groups and intersections that people play out. Now, ego is, I think, and I've seen this manifest. It's just, it's a, it's a, it's an attitude of I've got to win and I've got to be right. Okay. Mm. Um, when it comes to work on inclusion and it comes to work on and how we bring equality into workplaces they still fundamentally is this, this view that it's a win-lose situation mm. and that's where the ego comes in that's where the ego comes in to say well i've got to win here and i've got to be right so the the core of unraveling ego in the work that we do and in having these conversations is to move people past this 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 place where they are stuck and that is this is not a win-lose discussion. This mm. is a win-win. A win for one is a win for all. And we're kind of stuck there where we kind of see this as a game of squaring off against each other. Now, because there's such a moral objection, like I said, to um, owning your accountability mm. and to seeing that you have bias in you and to see how prejudice plays out, because it's such an inherent kind of Oh, I have to be seen as a good guy here. I have to win this argument. I can't mm. admit that I have prejudice. I can't admit that I have bias. That's when ego gets in the way and you want to prove that you are right and the good person. So when we take that barrier out of the way and we say, look, at this is not a judgment about who you are. This is not about you being right. This is not about you being a good guy or a you know, good person or a bad person. This is really about saying we all have some limiting beliefs. And that's not a judgment whether you are smart or not good enough, etc. Mm. These are fundamentals. It's a scientific fact that we all have bias and we have some degree of prejudice. Now, let's move past that and talk about how we can actually co-create a new future. Let's talk about how we can have some healthy conversations about how it limits all, all of us and how we can get to a win-win. So I think really ego comes in when we are stuck on this very kind of um, binary, good versus bad moral character judgments. Mm. Uh, it comes in when we're stuck on this, we're competing for limited seats, or I have to give up some of my privilege for somebody to have a bit more privilege. This is not a zero-sum game. This is a win game. And equality can always be a win game. Because if we're all winning and we're all redefining what's the prototype of success and creating healthier environments, that serves everyone. Mm. It serves men. It serves women. It serves everyone from every walk of life. Because then we can actually thrive together. Mm. Mm. You're absolutely right. So how then do we self-regulate? Um, you know... I often think about mm -hmm. when I see posts about self-care and I see the images that accompany those self-care posts. And it's always like, you know, your hair wrapped up in a towel and you're wearing a robe and you're relaxing and you're taking a long bath with candles or you're going to the spa or you're doing a little retail therapy. And I always say to my clients or people who come to me for advice that, yes, that's all very important. You know, it's important to bring softness into your life. But let me tell you where the real work is. <laughs> yeah. You know, so how do we hold ourselves accountable in a way that is meaningful and lasting um, to enable us to heal not just the trauma that we have, but also the trauma that we have intentionally or unintentionally inflicted upon others? You know, that's a great question. I love this image you use about, you know, taking a hot bath and that's, 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 you know, kind of the only way of self-care and right, lighting candles. And uh -huh. I will say, you know, the self-care is actually self-respect, right? Uh -huh. The truest form of self-care is self-respect. And, and that is about the first thing is that we all got to kind of 
come to this place, we realize that we're all the product of an unequal system. It's manifested in different ways. We have done different things to survive in the system. We have caused trauma to others. We've inflicted trauma to ourselves, but we're all the product of a very unequal system. Mm. And that's why I say unraveling this unequal system serves everyone. And and we see this a lot. And, and you know, I'm answering this in a slightly different way, but we see this in, in, um, how microaggressions play out in the workplace between white women and women of color as well, right? Mm. And, and, and that is limiting for white women. And that type of feminism is a very different um, phenomenon. It's been labeled toxic white feminism by mm. activists around the world. But what we really see there is actually a quite sad situation because we see that these are women who've actually bought into this notion that in order to be successful, I need to behave like a toxic mm. man. I need to display masculine behaviors. I need to be aggressive and dominant. So they're bought into this notion that they can't be authentic feminine women who collaborate and have empathy and co-create and support other women. They're bought into this notion of toxic masculine behaviors mm. and this prototype for success. So we see that kind of happen in the workplace as well. They've been inflicting trauma on each other as well because we don't have these environments where we can all actually be safe. So we all the product of unequal systems. It's manifesting in different ways and in toxic ways. But again, this is an example of how unequal systems are not serving anyone. Mm. So I guess the first step is to say, well, we all kind of in some way, we are not benefiting for this. So equality serves everyone. Changing this narrative on its head and creating true equality and breaking this idea of what is the prototype of success mm. serves everyone. So the first step really is we've got to forgive ourselves now, right? Mm -hmm. We've got to kind of become aware of the impact that we've had on others. And, and women are quite unusually hard on ourselves, right? Mm. We keep asking ourselves these limited questions. It's like, what did I do wrong? What mm. could I have done differently? But what we really need to start asking ourselves is what did I learn? Mm. And how can I be better? And then unpack these limiting beliefs about ourselves and, and set realistic goals. And, you know, we, we tend to do this sometimes. We set quite, we set goals that maybe are just, you know, too impossible because we are given these impossible standards in the workplace, mm. right? In the workplace, we're constantly told, you know, who you are is not good enough, right? Mm. Just, your presence is not good enough. Being, you're too aggressive, you're too stubborn, you you lack characteristics associated with leadership. So we told these things that we are not good enough. So we set these unrealistic goals for ourselves. I think we need to turn that in its head now and say, no, actually, let's be gentle on ourselves here. Let's forgive ourselves. Let's realize we're all product of a system that was not designed for us or serves us and set realistic goals and then help hold yourself accountable. Mm. Now, self-care is also very much, like I said, about self-respect, but it's about setting boundaries. And boundaries are very, very important for us if we're going to self-regulate and hold ourselves accountable. Mm. It's, we've got to be quite clear on what is acceptable and not acceptable. And asserting your boundaries is not a hostile act. It's a very gentle act of really saying, okay or not okay. Mm. And I say one of the healthiest ways to do this is to change your language. And women do not say, I need often enough. Mm. And sometimes just changing our language to go, I need for you to speak to me with respect. Mm. I need you to understand the load I carry outside the workplace. I need you to treat me the same way you would want to be treated. I need, I need, I need. And we need to bring that more into our everyday conversation that we need 
respect. We need boundaries and we are in this together. Now, once we create the solidarity, and I'm talking about true solidarity, not mm. just Instagrammable solidarity, then we can hold each other accountable as well. We can look out for each other and we can actually just check ourselves to say, are we winning here together? Is this about the us or is it about the bigger cause? Because it's never about the individual, right? Mm. I say when we do this kind of work and we in true solidarity, we accept that we are not the picture, mm. we are the frame. Mm. And when we accept that, then we know it's about a bigger cause and we're all in it together. Mm, I love that. Now, for anybody who would love to connect with you online or even contact you for um, your coaching services, where can they find you, Sharita? So I'm on Instagram at Sharita Dyer, and mm. you can also go to my website, sharitadyer.com. Perfect. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me. I mean, we could talk for hours because it's just there's just so much to say. There's just there so many so complexities. <laughs> and these conversations are so long overdue and they're so necessary. So absolutely. thank you for having it with me today. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. And thank you for joining us for another episode of the Workplace Revolution with me, Sile Bolani. I will see you again next time. Thank you.